the Wildlife Observer Network. Hi, welcome to, this might be the Irva Wildlife Podcast, this might be Nature's Hype Man, but regardless, it's part of the Wildlife Observer Network. And I'm here with an old friend of mine, uh, Josh Moody, is that how you like to be called, or is it Joshua? Josh is fine. Yeah, Josh Moody, uh, you know, sometimes people, they get professional, they, they use their full name. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I don't know if that's relaxed that way. Uh, I was just laughing because I had to check my phone. I had to stop the recording briefly because I decided to make banana bread and, and Joshua laughed because um, we've been having some trouble mostly on my all entirely on my end about scheduling this because I'm bad at uh, um, remember remembering I have ADD and I have sometimes bad at remembering appointments and especially bad when I don't, when it's such a weird time in society right now where i don't necessarily know what day of the week it is is we had a holiday so i'm like tuesday is you know like i i would have worked the full day and then it'd be the next day and then it was like no we have off on monday and it's but it's weird to be off because i'm home anyway so it's <laughs> strange and then like i thought i thought to, uh, we were doing this yesterday but it's today and then of course another example of my how it gets to me i'm like oh, i'm gonna make banana bread and i'm like yeah i have plenty of time to make it but I don't have, I had to take it out of the oven, uh, you know, in 55 minutes. Uh, so I just had to confirm with the missus that she was getting the banana bread out. Well, if it's a little well done, you can always put a little ice cream on it to help. Uh, yes. You know. And we got some last night, you know, we did the. You're all set. The, you got a backup plan. Yeah. Have you been doing the Amazon, uh, the, the, the prime now from Whole Foods? No. It'll make you never want to go to the grocery store again. Like I go to the grocery store now and I want to, I am livid. I, I'm so angry. I'm like so frustrated. It's just, it's so nice to just type what you want in. You can really manage your budget. Yeah. You look yeah. at the price in the cart and then, yeah. And like the, it, there's a little bit of a charge, but honestly, what you save a waste of food makes up for it. But we're here to talk about living sure lines, right? Um, um, so you're the, you're like a pioneer punk rocker in, in getting, in getting academic. I think you were like of our, at least of our crew of like our, of our generation. So, uh, I know Josh from the punk scene. Um, and I think he was like one of the first to actually like go back to school and get academic and you went, you got a PhD. Am I correct? Yeah. I, uh, I got my bachelor's in biology from temple. I got a master's in ecology from Rutgers and then my PhDs from Drexel. In environmental science that is awesome um and you and you started back you weren't like you you took a little break between like like you didn't you went a little bit later right you weren't oh like, yeah i yeah. took uh i call it my 20 semesters off i, t- I yeah. went back to school at, at 28 i started at actually ccp and then transferred over to temple from there i did I, the exact exact same thing um yeah. but at like in my 30s you know yeah. yeah, I was close, 28. I think that was uh, in, um, uh, let's see, 22, about 2007, or I'm, I'm sorry, uh, like 2004, 2003. Nice. I called it my 14-year um, rock and roll vacation. So. <laughs> yeah. But it's cool, yeah. Uh, and uh, An exhausting vacation, though. It is, it is. It's funny when you realize, you know, you're so against like going, like living a normal life the idea of like a 40 hour week um, and only weekends off is like frightening when you're like a um, 19 year old punk rocker. Yeah. But then after like, you know, 
work in security um, <laughs> uh, till three in the morning and then like, you know, maybe like having to go right from that to a demo job because you got to make money when the opportunities come to make money, you got to do it. And you're like, you know, getting your, you know, blowing your knee out as a bike messenger. You're like, huh. But you know what? I, I think that that sort of coming from the punk scene really puts you in a good frame of mind for doing environmental work. Because when you think about it, environmental work, there's nothing for certain. There's no replicates. Things are always changing. You constantly have to adapt and deal with situations as they arise. And you've got to think out of the box constantly. So if you're not used to security and things being neat and organized, this this kind of work won't give you a heart attack right away. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Amen. And I've told a story before, but my first field gig, I went up to uh, New York City to uh, interview with uh, uh, Robert Rockwell, who we've actually had on this uh, podcast already about uh, working at Snogies up in the Arctic. And he, uh, I was doing this interview with him, and he only asked me a little bit about birds. He started asking me more questions about like um, – what I would do if we're snowed, you know, if it's fought, we're working in the densest polar bear population in the world and there's fog. You can't go outside because you can't see the white, the giant white predator is going to eat you. Right. And so like, what are you going to do for, if we're fogged in for four days? Like, do you like to cook? Do you play cards? And, I, I'm, and I'm like, he wants to know if I can get along, if he can get along with me. And I said, you know what? I'm in a band. I tour the world. I'm stuck in a van with four other guys. I know how to get along with people. I'm like, I'm what you call a road dog. And he yeah. goes, road dog. I like that. Let's do it. And he took me up there. So it's funny that you bring up the van because when we interview people and we're hiring people, you know, uh, there's some people that I work with that really focus on the resumes, but the interview for me is the biggest thing. And anyone that I work with who listens to this, I call it the, it's, it's the get in the van test. Yeah. Because if you can't sit in a room and get along and engage, and you're not going to be able to sit in a van with them for like five hours round trip going to field sites, it may not be a good fit. And so that personality alignment I find is key to having a really good creative team. For yeah. Sure. And I think, yeah, it's the total get in the van. <laughs> and, you know, being what I do, um, I get asked to go to um, schools um, for like career days and to talk to kids about like do a career mentoring. And the one thing I always bring up is like, because I don't think the, I see the other people go ahead of me and I'm like, they're not saying the thing that they, sh there's something being missed here. And that is like, you got to present yourself as someone that people can get along with. And you got to present yourself like you're interested in the job that you're doing now, because I feel like so many kids are like, they present themselves like this is just a way station to get somewhere else. And like, mm -hmm. and no one's going to want to hire you for that. And no one's going to want to hire you if you don't seem like you're a fun, nice person to get along with. Yeah. And I don't know. It's, I think maybe we lucked out and coming from the background we came from, we were so being uh letting our, our regular personality come through was so ingrained with us we didn't really have an option on how necessarily we were going to present ourselves it was going to kind of come through anyway so we might have ended up in good positions because we connected with people just naturally the way that we've always connected with people but i sometimes feel bad for you know younger people coming up and they're trying to figure out you know you know who should i be in this interview who do they want to see or you know or, you know, what do I want to project? And, and 
you know, I, I, at least I know when I interview people, I at least try to create an environment where we can sort of, you know, break down the walls a little bit and they end up getting comfortable and just, you can start to see that, you know, but they relax into it. And I, and I find a lot of the times when you work with people, cause I, I, most of the people I work with are a lot younger than me that, you know, and, and my, actually my boss and my mentor, Daniel Krieger's like that too. She just set such a good tone and people became so relaxed that, you know, you could really just get a feel for who each other were. And, and you know, once people get comfortable in a situation, I, I think they really do the best and, and they're mo the, the things they're most interested in as well. Yeah. Well, speaking of things you're most interested in, so you, 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 you do living sure we're, we're talking about living sure lines and we'll probably go from there, but let's, let's start yeah. with that. Um, and, uh, tell us about, you know, your organization, um, and what, what your main uh, focus is and how it fits into sure. everything. Well, uh, so I'm the restoration programs manager at partnership for the Delaware estuary and Partnership for the Delaware Estuary is uh, one of the 28 national estuary programs around the country. So we're the estuary program for the Delaware River and Bay. And what that really means is it's the tidal portion that goes from salt water up to fresh water and, you know, uh, and the land that drains into that area. So, um, you know, because we're an estuary program, we get a little bit of our funding through the EPA's Clean Water Act. And so we're a clean water organization. All the work that we do in some way relates back to clean water, healthy habitats, strong communities, that kind of thing. And so um, when, I was, when I was at Rutgers uh, uh, University, I was working at a shellfish lab there. And the science director at Partnership for the Delaware Estuary was interested in bringing this technique called living shorelines, which had been more commonly used down south in the US, uh, up into this area. Now I was working at a shellfish lab and my advisor, uh, Danielle, or, or my now my, now my, my uh, director, Danielle, she was, uh, um, she's a shellfish ecologist by training as well. And, and the thoughts that her and Dave Bushick, the director of the Haskin Lab had was, well, for living shorelines, what we really want to do is figure out a way that we can uh, use the local ecology in this area to take some of the applications of living shorelines that have been used and sort of make them our own here. Now, previously, living shorelines, especially down in Maryland and Virginia, was really a, a particular thing. It was almost like a rock sill along an eroding shoreline with, with a lot of uh, wetland vegetation planted on top of it. So it, it almost be, become living shorelines synonymous with a technique, if you will. Now, the idea here by bringing it up here is, uh, you know, we wanted to see how many different how many different ways we could think about living shorelines. Is it really just a singular technique, or is it something a little bit more? So, really, the test that we started out with in around 2008 in the Delaware Bay was really looking at the relationship between rib mussels and salt marsh corgrass uh, Spartina alternifloor. It's typically a monoculture along most salt marshes. Uh, grows up into the high marsh, a little bit taller down where it's flooded more frequently. Um, and so rib mussels in this grass have a, a really synergistic relationship where the grass provides a place for the mussels to burrow down in. The mussels being a filter feeder, they pull a lot of nutrients out. Some they keep to build tissue, some they deposit in the ground, which becomes fertilizer for the plants. So you get this kind of positive feedback loop where 
bigger the plant gets, the more muscles can kind of gather around and attach to it. And then the more they fertilize, the bigger the plants get. And as the muscles using these protein complexes called vessel threads, which are extremely strong, bind to the roots of those plants, they can help to hold shoreline edges together. So the idea was to take this natural sort of mutualistic relationship and use that as the foundation, as the living point to help, you know, curb some of the erosion in living shoreline applications. So, you know, we, We've worked on that with Rutgers University for a, a number of years. We have a number of different living shorelines out there. And, um, and, and what we, I think we really served as the organization that I work for, Partnership for the Delaware Estuary, sort of like a testing lab. You know, we get these ideas, these research questions. We go out and we try to implement them, learn from them, and pass them on. And now this particular technique of living shoreline has been used uh, by a few different organizations in Delaware and New Jersey. But we typically, we use these in lower energy areas and you know, not all areas are the same as we start to move into these urban areas, these highly energetic areas, you know, big ships are going by. Um, but there's a whole ecology around them. You know, not a single technique is gonna work everywhere in every location. So what is our opportunities for living shoreline applications across a variety of diverse habitats, right? And so, Whereas in Maryland, to sort of loop this back, a living shoreline became a particular type of installation with a particular type of materials oriented in a particular manner in a particular type of location to uh, address a particular circumstance, erosion. We in this area, and when I say we, it's, you know, uh, our organization works very closely with the states of Delaware, New Jersey, a lot of the other academic institutions and NGOs in the area, such as PNC, Riverfront North Partnership up in Philadelphia. Um, the, the sort of consensus we came to is that, you know, if a living shoreline's function is to promote life, it's really not about the types of materials that you put in somewhere. For something to be a living shoreline, it needs to be functioning as a living shoreline. So, the concept of the living shoreline in this area has started to move away from a specific type of tactic, but more into this idea of function. Something functions as a living shoreline, it's providing ecological uplift. And now what that does is that opens the door to a whole variety of different tactics that could be considered living shorelines, because ultimately at the end of the day, a living shoreline is an engineered structure. You are taking some materials, you are putting them in a location, you want that to you know, typically attenuate erosion or maybe help build elevation. But at the same time, you want it to promote life. So you put these materials down, they're going to affect the physical conditions, which will affect the biological conditions at the site, which will then feed back. So by, by thinking of a living shoreline in terms of its functionality, we get away, we open the door for all these different techniques to be considered living shorelines if, they're designed with ecological components that can support life. And how do we know if they are meeting their goals, their ecological goals? How do we know if they're functioning? And this brings it, it really sort of dovetails it with uh, the scientific method is you need to monitor all of these installations. You need to know ecologically how it's performing before you did anything to the area. And you need to track some metrics that are related to your goals afterwards. And by doing that, we can see if things are functioning as living shorelines and if they're providing ecological functions, 
then and they're providing ecological uplift, it may not matter the constituents that, that comprise the structure itself. It's really what it's doing. And now you gotta be careful, right? Because you don't want people putting a bunch of potted plants on top of bulkheads and calling it a living shoreline. Look, I got grass growing on this wall. You really want to think holistically about the whole ecology in the area and see how this structure is, is uh, the function and the effects of it are radiating out through the variety of habitats it's placed within. But what it does is it allows, thinking of it as a function, allows us to address the, the ecological implications of hard armoring in areas like urban habitats where you, it's going to be really hard to do something soft, just as the way energy is bouncing around. So if we're going to try to build elevation with sea level rise, we're going to try to stem erosion and keep critical habitats there under certain energetic conditions, we're going to need to heavily engineer stuff. But if we can make a priority of those designs also enhancement of ecological function while we're doing this, then we start to get into a place where we can move forward in these areas in really building out these habitats and creating the, the proper conditions for them to persist under these, under these different areas. So living shorelines is always a developing field. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we've worked down in the Delaware Bay and more natural habitats. I can talk a little bit about some work we're doing up in the Schuylkill River across the Delaware River in Camden. There's group uh, Riverfront North who's been doing some work up in Northeast Philadelphia. And um, what our role, what we, our, our partnership for the Delaware Estuary, how we view our role is to sort of bring together these different groups whose skill sets are needed to create something that's functional. Bring them together, sort of pilot these ideas our organization and one of my, my roles in it is to develop monitoring plans, collect data, analyze data. So design these experiments, implement them, collect data on them, learn from them, and then help, uh, uh, help promote the techniques that uh, there's evidence for them working. That is, this is um, really, really cool stuff you're doing here. Um, and. Could you walk us through some of the, um, I'd say, ecosystem um, services that these are providing? Sure. A typical. So we've um, we, we've authored a couple of documents. One is one in Delaware um, with partners at TNC and New Jersey DEP, and these are um, and one also in Delaware with the Delaware Living Shorelines Committee. And both of these groups are uh, groups that have put together these documents for groups of diverse stakeholders from public, private, NGO, academic sectors. And, and what both of these documents do is outline a couple of specific goals, different goals that living shorelines can have. So in terms of ecosystem function, you know, one goal that uh, living shorelines can always have is erosion control. And now depending on what's being eroded, there's quite a few different um, uh, functions that could be affected there. You can be thinking about things like carbon sequestration through vegetation uh, proliferation, you know, storage below ground and roots and dead biomass. You can think about habitat creation and persistence for different types of uh, fauna that require certain types of habitat for different life stages. You can think about the intertidal portions of them as helping to support fisheries as nursery habitats for young fish. 
You can think about uh, nitrogen cycling, not only through the plants taking nitrogen out of the water, you know, through their production of biomass, but if you incorporate shellfish into living shorelines, which is something our organization does, you know, we have um, about four or five of us all have backgrounds in shellfish ecology and physiology. Shellfish are a great ecosystem engineer, so they can help build benthic infauna habitats, which are great for fish foraging. They can help cycle nutrients from the water column down to the benthos, also to the vegetation to remove those from the system, reducing algal blooms. Um, you can think about living shorelines providing resiliency along coasts by helping to build elevation and trap sediment. So there's a variety of different services that living shorelines can provide. And one of the things that uh, we like to talk about a lot is when we're, when we're approached with a location, someone's like, you know, all right, I've got an issue here. And the issue is typically erosion or something that they really want to be there other than the land is disappearing, some type of habitat. You know, we're interested in doing something here. We, we really want to stop this erosion, but, you know, we just don't want to, you know, throw some rock down. What can we do ecologically? And so what's really important to create a, a really good functioning living shoreline is to understand the ecological, uh, uh, the ecological conditions, what currently exists and what is possible to exist in that area, what would be natural to exist there um, for that specific site. Because once you understand how the site is functioning now and you understand what could be enhanced, you can start setting goals. You know, which are these goals? What do we really need? Flood reduction. Are we looking at a, an elevation-based goal? Are we uh, talking about erosion? We have an erosion control-based goal or a habitat enhancement goal. But what's nice is once you outline that, then you can start thinking about all those different associated services that come along with it. And a lot of them are going to have to do with nutrient sequestration, um, habitat proliferation, and especially uh, uh, refuge for all different types of juvenile, uh, you know, animals, fish, flora, fauna, you know, fauna of different types. So I think living shorelines can meet a bunch of different goals, and typically they, they meet a variety of them. One living shoreline um, that we're developing over in Camden, New Jersey, with their municipal utility authority, the wastewater treatment plant, you know, Part of its function, there's going to be freshwater mussel beds there that will help with nutrient reduction. You know, not only will they help pull nutrients out of the water column, they'll help increase benthic infauna, which will be better fish foraging habitat. The vegetation in and of itself will be nice habitat for birds that come through. So there's the service of providing the habitat for the bird, but then there's also the service for the community, people who like to look at the birds. They can come out and have a place where they can, you know, you know, foster their stewardship potential along these shorelines. And, and actually, to, to take a little side tangent, that I think is one of the services of living shorelines that constantly uh, is either overlooked or maybe undervalued. And where it, I think, is one of the most important facets of constructing urban living shorelines is this ability for them to serve as educational and stewardship tools to connect people with the water in places where a lot of times people have been told to largely be afraid of the water or that it's like a dirty place and you shouldn't go near it. Or you shouldn't worry about it. And um, there's a lot of opportunity to foster that stewardship through education, through connection, 
you know, by increasing these habitats, you give people something to look at, something to learn about. And then, you know, you're an educator, you know, as well as me, once people understand something a little bit, they start to care about it. And then once they start to care about it, they're sort of interested in, in protecting it. So yeah, a lot of different, a lot of different benefits, you know, spanning a lot of different topics for living fish. Yeah. Um, so this hits close to home. Uh, a lot of what you're saying. I don't know if you, I don't know if you know this about me, you probably do, but I, I grew, actually grew up in Northeast Philadelphia. Yeah. I grew up in Wissanoming and then Mayfair and we would bike down um, to the, to the river um, to, to go fishing. And there's, there, I mean, there, there's no natural shore. There's like very little natural shoreline on the Delaware and there's very little natural shoreline um, on the uh, Schuylkill river. Right. So yeah. and like you said, you go down there and there's just no, you know, it's just a concrete drop off. And, and um, so in Philadelphia, unfortunately, in Camden as well, um, which is a, a city across the river. If you remember, not just us listening to this, right? There's going to be people who don't know about Philadelphia. Um, and um, Camden is kind of like Philly's Gary, Indiana, right? Or like Philly's Compton, right? It's a, it's um, it's it's not a suburb. It's a it's it's a, a city that's like directly across the river from Philadelphia. So it's just as urban as Philadelphia. It just happens to be in New Jersey. And so, um, I guess because we were old in an old city, we've developed this, uh, our riverbanks have been industrialized and there's very little places you actually go in and enjoy a, a beautiful view of the river, right? It, you go down there and it's just concrete. So uh, I love these ideas of these living shorelines. Um, providing some, you know, aesthetic value, which is not to be understated. So what, um, how do those, um, one thing I've always been curious about is when you mentioned birds, I assume it's more like herons and, and like waiting, like, uh, like herons and egrets and those, right? Um, shorebirds need mudflats. Um, is there any way to like, kind of like make an artificial mudflat, um, or man-made mudflat. But the the problem that is because if they're too static, they'll get covered in vegetation, and then it'll be more like heron habitat rather than shorebird habitat. Is that is something possible? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's a a, a couple of things there, and, and I, I think one of the main overarching philosophical discussions that constantly happens and uh, around living shore on implementation is typically if you're going to build something somewhere, you're building it on top of something else, right? So you're always, you're always involved in a habitat trade-off issue pretty much. So if you're thinking about, okay, this marsh has been eroding, well, now it is a mudflat habitat. The mudflat habitat has a lot of ecological service and value to it. So one of the things in thinking about appropriate places to put in living shrines is you don't want to end up in a place where you're, you know, the robbing Peter to pay Paul kind of thing. We're going to vastly reduce one habitat in order to promote, promote another one. Um, but typically, uh, because of the erosion rates in a lot of the areas where this happens, I mean, some places down in the Delaware Bay are, are losing up to like six feet of marsh a year. So you have a, a, a lot of times an overwhelming uh, uh, availability of mudflat habitat. And so the, the, the small amounts of marsh that you put in aren't really skewing that balance too much. 
but you do want to be careful because if it is an area that is being heavily utilized by something, you may not want to mess with it, right? Because erosion is also a natural process. Erosion and accretion should be happening, but they should be happening in some sort of balance. A place should be eroding somewhere and a place should be accreting somewhere. So it is important, you know, the first thing to say is definitely it's important to think about the location where you're, where you're putting something because you are always converting habitat. But it's interesting when you mention like, oh, could we just build out a mudflat living shoreline? See, a lot of people associate a living shoreline with vegetation because that was largely, you know, how, what they were used for. You were building a marsh on top of something. But if we start to think about a living shoreline as a measure of function, all we're going to be doing to make it a living shoreline is you are doing something to the area, installing something to create some sort of ecological benefit that could persist. Now, when you think about flooding in an area and you think about water getting into areas, one good way to keep water from getting into areas is to build a hill. You know, it takes a lot of energy for water to go up a hill. It typically would rather spread out than, than go up. It needs pressure behind it. So, one of the types of things that we've been talking about working with um, is this idea. So you might build a vegetated portion of your living shoreline, but then out in front of it, you may want to be augmenting the slope, right? You're going to keep it a mudflat habitat. You still want it to be underwater, but you want it to sort of keep water at bay. But that mudflat itself <clears throat> can be part of that living shoreline. So uh, I think building unvegetated slopes would most certainly be a component. And as we get into, you know, these larger living trails, a lot of the pilot projects that have been done, you know, are pretty small, you know, 80 feet, 150 feet, 200 feet, you know, there's a lot of proof of concept. But as we start as a region, getting into these bigger, larger designs, which is the direction that we're going in Delaware, New Jersey, for sure, and, and Pennsylvania is starting as well. Uh, is what we're going to see is a living shoreline is really, if it's along a, 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 a greater stretch, is going to be a whole suite of subtactics. I think a perfect example of that is right now in Philadelphia behind the Walmart along the Delaware River, along uh, uh, four of the piers there, the Delaware River Waterfront Corporation is, you know, involved in redesigning that waterfront there to serve multiple goals, habitat, bird habitat, fish habitat, mussel habitat, and, and recreational uh, opportunity as well. And when you start to see these bigger ones, they're going to have all these subcomponents, subtital portions, you know, focusing on SAV and mussels, maybe intertidal portions with this augmented slope that would be good for uh, birds foraging at low tide, as well as vegetative portions. Now in the Delaware Bay, you know, thinking about red knots and horseshoe crabs and things like that who prefer sandy habitats, uh, the American Littoral Society down there does a lot of great work doing uh, beach restoration, specifically, you know, targeting, you know, red knot foraging habitat, trying to, you know, enhance that and make it appropriate. And I think all those different goals can easily fall under this umbrella of living shorelines, as long as you can prove it. <laughs> You gotta be evaluating it, you've gotta be looking at it, and you need a goal to, to track your change against. And if it's functioning as, as, and it's supporting life, and they can do that in a myriad of ways, this is, this is a living shoreline to me. So mostly you're doing areas where 
um, the the natural shoreline has been eroded. Are you doing work where the body of water, the river, has been channelized and like like huge stretches of Schuylkill are just all concrete? Is there any way to like? I know I've seen some like floating like structures. Um, do they are they considered living shorelines, or is there any way to like? Um, you know, I'm thinking like shorebirds without you know migrating up over Philadelphia, like we the some of the areas that are protected would be along the the Schuylkill or Delaware or um like East Park Reservoir mm -hmm. where it's um but the but the the banks are too steep or or concrete. Yeah. So is there any way to like mount something that could provide that kind of habitat or is that you know, out of the scope of what we're talking about here. No, no, I think it's, I think it's within the scope, and I think this is a new area, and I can talk about two specific projects. In terms of, like, the, the, the bulkhead itself, like, this is sort of a, a greening up the gray kind of thing, and, and you run into this with homeowners a lot. Whether people have bulkheads or rocks, things like that, a lot of times people don't want to take them out, but they wouldn't mind converting them into habitat if they can. But also in certain places, it doesn't make any sense to take them out <laughs> because you know you, you need you have critical infrastructure behind them. You need them to stay there. But what can we do on top of them, in front of them? So uh, directly to augment the bulkhead itself, there's actually some uh, some people down in Maryland and some people in Delaware now that are working with these sort of marsh Oregon type of things. It, it's almost like, you know how in a in the backyard of the city you can hang something on your wall where it's got all the different plants. It's like the bio yeah. wall and diversity. Yeah. So people are looking at different things like that. But and that's and that's one one method. Whether that itself is a living shoreline or more of the just like you know putting plants on gray infrastructure, I think would more fall in a second category. But if you're in an intertidal area where the tide does go out and you have this area in front of it and some subtidal area to work with, you can do something. So the um, Camden County Municipal Utility Authority in Camden, New Jersey, that we're working, we're working with a private firm, uh, we're working with them and then they contracted to a private firm, Stantec, to design this and we're, we're the ones that are um, uh, making sure that it's ecologically sound and helping develop the habitats. This is a giant 20 foot seawall goes about 1,200 feet, and there's nothing in front of it. Some soft mud, some rocks. It's poor foraging habitat, no SA submerged aquatic vegetation community. You don't really see anything going on there. So this is one of those examples of having to potentially use techniques that in and of themselves may not be considered green, but because of their presence, you can get this radiating ecological uplift. So the current design for this location is there would be a series of uh, um, sort of uh, uh, wave breakwaters set out from this, set out a pretty good distance from this, maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe about 100 feet in front of it. And so what those are going to do, these rock breakwaters, is they're going to attenuate shipping waves. Now, why is nothing there? Well, because these giant barges are going by and the energy's hitting these walls, like you say in the Schuylkill, and it's just bouncing everywhere. It's it's, it's digging out anything that's going to grow on the substrate. It's just creating an extremely inhospitable environment for anything to persist. But you start to deal with that energy first. So you put something in to deal with the energy. Now that the energy is attenuated behind it, in the subtitle portion, in the lee of these uh, um, uh, breakwaters, is perfect muscle habitat. 
you install freshwater mussel pens down in this area, that's going to start bringing fish in and things like that. Freshwater mussels are also, you know, very well associated with enhanced aquatic vegetation growth. They help to clear the water a little bit. They pass the nutrients on. And now once the energy is reduced, 